0: Amen and amen. So good to be with you tonight as we continue our journey along with the prophet Isaiah. And tonight, chapter 25. You might remember last time in chapter 24, we see this incredible picture of the world as it was during Isaiah's time. And as it is in our time, it was a world that was upside down. And as we now turn our attention to chapter 25, we find this picture of the Messiah who is the preserver of his people. The Lord will preserve his people. The Lord has always preserved his people. And no matter what the storm that you're going through, no matter whether we're talking about this particular picture, which is the very last days, or whether it's the storm that we're facing currently Maybe it's the economy, your job, perhaps it's your mortgage, your home. Maybe it's that coronavirus has actually come into your house. Maybe you actually have had it or someone in your home has had it. Uh, Perhaps it's the the things that we're facing as a nation. And as we seem so divided and so uh, torn apart, really in the fabric of who we are as a people, the Lord has a plan in every single storm. And he will certainly have a plan to preserve his people in the very last days, a time that uh, we call the time of Jacob's trouble. We know it ultimately as the tribulation, the final three and a half years of that seven-year period that Daniel called that final week, uh, that we know as the great tribulation, which will culminate with several events that will come in very rapid succession. The Antichrist will rise, he'll build this incredible kingdom that will look like a kingdom of peace, and then he'll declare war, really, on all of humankind. And the Bible says that the children of Israel will even be saved during that time, but the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 30, calls that time the time of Jacob's trouble. And it says there in verse 4, and now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. And so both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, comprising the entirety of the nation that we call Israel, the Jewish people in their totality, those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and ultimately Jacob, Judah, and Israel. For thus says the Lord, for we have heard the voice of trembling and of fear, not of peace, and ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. Things will be so horrific then that it seems like the whole world is upside down. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, literally bent over as if this massive pain has overtaken them? Because in that day... The Bible says, the prophet Jeremiah spoke, all their faces turned pale, for alas, that day is great, so that none is like it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he, and that he is Jacob and his 12 sons, shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass. In that day, says the Lord of hosts. Would you pray with me? And we'll pick up in Isaiah 25. Father, we thank you. No matter what we face as individuals, what we face as the church, what we face as a nation, or what we face as a world, you will preserve your people. And you'll very specifically preserve Israel in that day. The nation, the chosen ones that you have loved you've named after your own self, that they would be governed by you. And so, Lord, we pray tonight as we study your word that you would speak to us, strengthen us, encourage us, instruct us, Lord. We need to know what the future holds and your word tells us so much uh, about what lies ahead, specifically for those that don't know you, who are right now walking in rebellion, who think this upside down world is the world they want to live in. And so we pray that you would bless us as we study your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Verse 1. For you, O Lord, you are my God, and I will exalt you, and I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, for your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And as we go through this particular passage, we're going to find this chapter contains uh, the phrase, my people Israel. And and the Lord is specifically speaking uh, of his plan in the very last days for his chosen people, not the church, the nation Israel. And while we've been grafted in, and while we are God's kids, while we are those children by grace, The Lord is very severely focused in in the book of Isaiah on his plan for his actual people, those that we would call the Jewish people or the nation Israel. And as you look at the prophetic word of God specifically, the Bible talks about this coming day of the Lord as we have looked at it, uh, described as the day of the Lord, but very specifically that time that would be at the end of the age of grace. And why is this important? Because the Bible plainly describes this time that finally God will say enough is enough. I'm not going to allow mankind to get any more upside down. I will not allow them to to turn from me any longer. And God is going to finally say, I'm going to take care of this myself. And ultimately, he will send his own son, Jesus, back to fight what we call the Battle of Armageddon, where all of the nations of the earth will be gathered against the Lord, arrayed in the Valley of Megiddo, in the plain of Esdraelon, uh, that extends all the way from the northern coast near Haifa and all the way r- wraps around the Jordan River Valley and ultimately ends up with its culmination in this place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And so the Bible is speaking of a very specific time. And praise the Lord, as it does so, it speaks of a time that is still tonight yet future. And so as he's dealing with the nation Israel, he's dealing with that time that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 reminded us that in that day, all Israel will be saved. They that call upon the Lord. And so during this time, the Lord is speaking uh, of the day of the Lord in a very general sense, but he's really reviewing uh, what we would call a global calamity or a global judgment. And as we saw in chapter 24, the Lord always judges his enemies. We, We don't ever slide. And so you can either be judged today by receiving Christ in grace. Or you can try and work those things out with God when you meet him. You don't want to do that. You want to receive his grace and be saved and be judged by the blood of the lamb, having covered your transgressions. But many in the world don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so God will have to ultimately, and in a final sense, the great white throne judgment, he's going to say, look, you never knew me, depart And those people are going to be cast into the lake of fire with the Antichrist, with Satan himself, and with all of Satan's angels. And so God is now speaking of a time when he's going to carry out that judgment, when he's going to pour out his wrath. And while these chapters are are horrifying to some degree uh, for all people, they don't have to be horrifying for you because you live in the age of grace. If you're listening right now, You can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And rather than think about facing the judgment of the Lord and needing to be spared from the wrath that is to come, you can simply walk in his grace and know that you'll be coming back with the Lord when he returns instead of facing the Lord as an enemy. And so we see this day of the Lord that's spoken of, and Jesus makes mention of it, uh, in what we call the Olivet discourse, this is this time when he spoke in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, uh, Luke chapter 21, as he speaks of these conditions that would that would be the conditions that would be at the end when the Lord finally says enough. And of course, the general things there are wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence. Uh, The world upside down, the world hating sin uh, being called good and good being called evil. And and so the Bible in Revelation chapter 6 to 19 speaks of this time uh, in a very deeply uh, precise way as God first speaks of these seven churches that had a, a period of time in church history and then speaks of how he wants all people to come to know him. And if you do, you're saved by grace. And if you don't, then you ultimately are going to have to face him as judge. And so chapter 24, which we've already studied, and and chapter 25 that we're in tonight, uh, paints this picture of God having to be a righteous judge. He, He can't avoid that. God is righteous, and so he must judge righteously. But tonight we see that he saves his remnant people. And probably like me, you're likely sick of the way the world is going. We look at the things in our world and say, Lord, how long? We we cry out with the prophets of old, Habakkuk and the prophet Isaiah himself. It's like, Lord, David in the Psalms It's like, when are you going to get on with this? When are you going to judge the earth? How long, O Lord, are you going to... Um, allow the wicked to prosper? How how long will it be that you allow mankind to, to turn its nose up to heaven and say, we want nothing to do with you? You see, from our perspective, because we're living in this upside down world that we saw last time, we're saying like, Lord, bring it on right now. But from heaven's perspective, he's seeing the brokenness and the lostness and so he tarries a while longer. He looks at the souls of those that would be lost were the Lord to come tonight. He's saying, look, I want to preserve this remnant. I want that remnant to be as big as it possibly can. So God extends his grace. Israel is going to be persecuted. Israel is going to be cast out. Israel is going to be scattered all over the face of the earth. But make no mistake, God hasn't lost a single one of the Jewish people. He knows Absolutely where they have been, absolutely where they are tonight. You see, sometimes we think that, you know, maybe God's asleep. God's kind of lost it, if you will. It's like, ah, he doesn't really know where I am, he doesn't know what I'm doing. And to some degree, this is the reason that people feel emboldened to live lives of sin. It's like, well, God doesn't care. God's not watching, He's not concerned with me personally. The problem is, he is. And today we see God's plan for this world, and we look at it, and we were, we we're reminded of what he said there in Romans chapter 8 that in fact the entire creation groans to be redeemed. We've jacked up the planet, we've jacked up humankind, we've ruined society. We've created weapons of mass destruction. We've created war after war after war. And the Lord hasn't lost sight of a single thing that man has done. I got into a conversation with a guy a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the Second World War, and he he gave me some absurd thing. He was a Holocaust denier for one thing. And I said, that's that's ridiculous. I've been to Dachau. I, I've seen the concentration camps. I, I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I've been to Yad Vashem. I've seen the piles of shoes of people that were lost their lives in Auschwitz. But he said, well, you know, it wasn't that bad during the Second World War. Was, you know, maybe a million, two million people. I said, do you have any idea how many people were lost in the Soviet Union? In Russia? The Germans wiped out almost 40 million people in Russia alone. Well, you know, that's an exaggeration. Now, look, let's just be honest. Mankind has been evil to mankind since the dawn of time. That's the story of human history. We have created new, better, and bigger ways to wipe one another out. And finally, God is going to say, Just as the prophet Ezekiel pictures there in Ezekiel 36 through 39, it's going to come to pass, Ezekiel said, in verse 18 of chapter 38, at that same time when God comes up against the land of Israel, that God says, in my fury I will show my face. God's going to finally say, enough. You don't get to do this anymore. And then he says in verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, for surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And he goes on to describe these things that will happen. But in verse 23 of Ezekiel chapter 38, the Lord says something very specific to the prophet Ezekiel. He says in verse 23, And thus I will magnify myself. And sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and then they will know that I am the Lord. You see, people right now are looking at the world thinking there is a political solution to the problems that ail the world. That somehow, if we just have enough social programs to try and fix the things that we see going on, that that somehow will fix the world. That is not the problem. It's never been the problem. And social solutions are not the fix. The fix is the human heart. And the fix to the human heart is a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not more social programs. We can't spend enough money on social programs to fix what ails the earth. We can't give people enough help. We we can't try and correct universal health care and, and think that no one will ever get sick or that no one will die in a war. The problem is not those things. The problem that the heart of the problem is this, the heart of man is deceitful. And it is desperately wicked. And who can know it? And unless you change the heart of man, you will never fix the problems that come from man. And so God finally says, that's it. And so this message that we see here in chapter 25 is to all of mankind. And God is saying sin and rebellion has drastic consequences. It has consequences in our world. Our world is a mess. And whether you believe in climate change or global warming or don't, whether you think it's exaggerated or it is not, I can tell you a vast majority of the world is radically polluted. It is not the way God intended it. The the lakes that were once clear and clean are, are now filled with all kinds of things that have floated down from the atmosphere. We have depleted much of the natural resources, and whether we think they're going to last another 100, 200, or whether the polarized caps are going to melt and flood half of the surface of the earth, those things are unimportant. Your Bible says that this earth is not going to last indefinitely, that it it's got a date stamp on it, and the Lord is one day going to redeem it, remake it, and create a new heaven and a new earth. And in the meantime, this earth is groaning. God gives us this imagery of the depth of depravity of human character and human nature and what we are actually doing to the physical planet and to the physical beings that we are while we're here. Sometimes people wonder where all these cancers are coming from. I believe it's part of the fall. Yes, there are medical explanations for, for much of what's going on, but it's really the fact that mankind is, is woefully uh, denying the God that created us. And so what we have is this destruction that's going on all over the globe. And so we get these striking images here in this 25th chapter. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. And I will exalt you and praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, for your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. You see, if you don't believe what God says about himself and about his creation, then you have to make up your own reason that we exist. And if you make up a reason that leaves God out of the equation, then you have to conclude at some point in time that we got here some other way. Are we the product of random chance processes over billions of years? Were we planted here, seeded by some alien race from some place in the distant galaxy? Or were we, as the Bible says, in God's faithfulness and his truth, created in his very image? If you believe that, then those certain unalienable rights that we have that come from God actually come from God. You see, then humanity, all of it, has the same value before a God who created it. But if you don't believe that, then you'll start taking advantage of other human beings for your own personal growth, for your own personal wealth, for your own personal uh, enrichment. Notice verse 2, "...for you have made a city a ruin." A fortified city a ruin and a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. You know, the world is covered with cities that are absolutely stunningly beautiful and wonderful. The more you travel, you realize the ingenuity of man. And you look at the things that we've built and you say, well, that's going to last forever. That's the place I'd run to. An example of exactly what God is saying here is look at the difference between those of us who happen to live in a large metropolitan area, city right now during this uh, COVID pandemic. We're actually being hit hardest. And in fact, the prophet Isaiah is going to actually go on to say, woe to you who live in walled cities. God is saying, look, your cities aren't going to save you. In essence, your technology, your building prowess isn't going to save you. Your high and lofty skyscrapers won't save you. If you've ever gone on the internet, I encourage you to do it. Just Google the the Burj al-Dubai. And look at this building that's nearly a half mile tall. When the fog rolls into that region of Dubai, you you have half of the building sticking out of the top of the clouds. It's insane. Crazy what man can build. But God's saying, that's not going to save you. You might think these great cities you built, that's going to be your refuge in that time. I'm telling you, it's not going to be your refuge. Every city is going to be a city that I'm going to take down personally, God's saying. Verse 3, for... The strong people will glorify you, and the city of terrible nations will fear you. You see, in Isaiah's time, this would have been kind of crazy. Because in Isaiah's time, most of of the land that we now call Israel, which the Romans invented the name and called it Palestine, that region of the world that was previously Canaan, inhabited by the Elamites and the Edomites and the Hittites, be invaded by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. That was an agricultural world. Cities weren't cities as we know them. They were villages. They were towns. But even during that day and time, when war came, where do you think the people went? They went to the fortified cities. They went to the places where they thought the walls that humans made could save them. And in that day, in those last days, described in Revelation chapter 6 through 9, the great cities of the world, in fact, in chapter 16 of the book of Revelation, God actually says the cities will provide no protection when God pours out his wrath on this earth. You can't keep God out by building a tall wall. No matter what you think you might be able to do by building something, there is going to be no bunker. I, I don't care how deep the bunker's buried in the earth. We we have a cave in Greenland right now where all of the seed stock of basically every plant on earth is being kept. It's actually called the ark. And you can go there, and in case there's an extinction-level event, you can go inside, and there'll be these Seeds, and we'll be able to replant the earth. It won't matter. The president has a bunker underneath the White House. We have several others. You've ever looked at the the beast? That's the president's armored limo that flies wherever he goes, anywhere in the world. That thing is 22 tons. It can take a direct hit from an anti-tank weapon isn't going to matter. Won't matter who protects you. There will be no force on earth that's going to stop the king of kings and the Lord of lords when God says man's reign of sin is over. He's going to deal with everyone everywhere no matter what building you're inside of. No city in that day will withstand the judgment of the Lord. But God is going to protect his people. Those who've given their lives to Christ during the tribulation, those who've lost their lives will be coming back with us. But those who've given their lives and somehow managed to survive, and I believe they will be very few. God says, for you have the strength. You have been strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in distress, a refuge in the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones the demonic ones, is as a storm against the wall and you will reduce the noise of aliens and the heat in a dry place as heat in the shadow of a cloud and the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Basically, the Lord is saying, I'm going to be your refuge and strength. I'm going to fulfill that promise of Deuteronomy 32. You won't have to worry about it. I'm going to be your fortress and your strong tower. God himself is our refuge. This world is not our refuge. Our bank accounts are not our refuge. Our relationships with others, not our refuge. No military is our refuge. Usually, assured destruction is not our refuge for the rest of the world. The Lord God himself is our refuge. And unless you know him, you don't have a refuge when this storm comes. Unless you've committed your life to Christ, there is no hiding from the wrath to come. But God cares for his children. And though he pictures this ruined city, and though he pictures this storm and this heat from from which he himself is the only answer, he, he's making the offer that he's always made. And this is the thing that's so striking to me about the fact that we can walk with the Lord by grace through faith. That he's saying, look, I will be today your refuge and your strength. You know, as I've pondered the things we've been going through for these last months, it's renewed my faith. It's like, Lord, unless you deliver us, we cannot be delivered from this. Unless you're my strength, I don't have any strength. I've gotten to the end of myself so many times, and if you want to ask Connie when you see her, you have to leave your mask on. But if you ask her, she'll tell you I've just I've broken down and just wept. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? And he reminds me, I'm your refuge, I'm your strength, I'm your strong tower, I'm your mighty one. I've got this. I have a purpose in all things. Don't forget that Romans 8 28 promise, Jeff. That, that applies to you right now. All things, working together for the good, for those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. That promise is for the church, but you know what? That promise is for those whom Jesus Christ is Lord. All things do not work out for the good for anyone other than those whom God loves. The end is really bad if you don't know Jesus. Let me be blunt. If you don't know Jesus, you should be scared to death tonight. Because if the Lord calls the final inning of the baseball game and says, okay, I'm sending in my closer. His name is Jesus, which praise God, I think we're going to have some baseball here at the end of the month. When the closer comes in, when Jesus says, look, it's the end of the game and we're going to win this thing, he's like the heavenly Kenley Jansen. He's going to come in and he's going to strike out the side. He's going to strike out every single army. No one will stand against him. And you may be thinking right now that your intellect will save you. It won't save you. Your money will not save you. Your powerful relationships with people on this earth will not save you. The only thing that can save you is the grace of God in Christ Jesus as the Lord. And if you don't have that, then you don't have anything. It's over for you. But the flip side is God saves all of his kids. No matter when, no matter where. And the picture of this is throughout Scripture. The first one that we see is in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, and it's the story of Noah. God looks at the world, and remember what God says about the world. He says, it is continually evil. And God says, I'm going to have to start over. But there is a righteous family on the earth, and God saves that one righteous family out of all of humanity. God knows those who are his. That's what he says... Noah, there's going to be eight of you. You and seven family members, that's it. But he saved them. And he prospered them. He kept them. And he was their refuge from the storm inside of the ark. God guarded Israel. When his judgments fell, when they were in captivity, they'd spent 400 years in captivity. A story there in Exodus 8 actually continues all the way through chapter 12. When you look at that story, you're thinking, man, the Jewish people are dead. They're going to die in Egypt. Pharaoh's just going to kill them all off. They're going to make bricks and they're going to be gone. What happens? The Lord says, I will come and I will avenge. All you need to do is believe by faith that that blood on your doorpost, the windows of your house, that that blood covers what needs to be covered. And I'll save you. And everyone under the blood was saved. The Lord cares for his kids. The same is true in the book of Joshua. In chapter 6, here's here's this woman you think God would not save. She kind of had a bad reputation. Now I I don't know how many of you ladies tonight are hoping that you can just say your name and then the harlot, but she was known as Rahab the harlot. It was kind of like that was her middle name, I guess. I don't know. But it meant then what it means now. But she was a redeemed woman who had had a checkered past she's a woman who lo- she's in the lineage of Jesus himself so it doesn't matter where you've been it just matters that you're his that you've committed your life and she believed by faith and her family and when jericho fell she was saved so was her family all the way to the book of Ezra, and here Judah's taken into captivity in Babylon, but God saves a faithful remnant. God cares for his kids. And no weapon fashioned against us will prosper. That's the whole context of Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All things work together for the good. It's a beautiful fulfillment of what we'll see at the end of this book. When when we finally get to the end of the book of Isaiah, when we get past chapter 52 and 53, these incredible messianic passages in chapter 54, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. If you're his, you're saved. If you're his, you're protected. I think in the context of what we just saw in our study through Luke's gospel, which is also contained in Matthew's gospel, the gates of hell itself. And whether it's the real place that Peter's staring at, this pool that was the offerings believed to be the entrance to the underworld, or whether it's the underworld itself, whether it's Satan himself. Satan can't touch you because God's got you. And so this picture of God delivering his church from the wrath that's to come is the reason that when we get to the New Testament and we begin to see what God says about these things, it says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how we turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For God didn't appoint us, verse 9 goes on to say, to wrath, but unto salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord, who died for us, that whether we wake, whether we're actually still alive or we sleep, we've gone home to heaven, we should live together with him. God cares for, preserves, and saves His kids, and so Isaiah gets this picture, and we'll see it next time in chapter twenty-six that He's going to hide us, hide those who are His. The Jewish people are going to be hidden. The Lord's going to be His dwelling, their dwelling place, and so that we might understand that He gives us a contrast between this incredible great feast and that which will happen to those who don't know him. And so verse 6 continues onward here in chapter 25. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees. In other words, grapes themselves of the fat things full of marrow. It was believed during that time that if you got a piece of meat and it had a bone and there was marrow in it, the marrow was the best thing. It's basically saying, look, I'm going to destroy sin. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to judge people who need to be judged. But if you're mine, you can have a feast. If you're mine, you're going to be saved from the wrath to come. If you're mine, you're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't need to worry about what's going to be happening here on this earth. And he will destroy on his holy mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. You see exactly what the, the Apostle Paul understood and we'll get there in a moment. The, the world is currently veiled. The world looks at religion and says, well, are you, are you a Christian? Well, I'm, I'm a Christian because I'm religious. No, you're not a Christian because you're religious. You're a Christian because you were a believer that Jesus Christ is Lord. You've confessed your sin. You've admitted to him, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're a Christian because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's those people. The Lord's going to just say, look, I'm going to take care of this. Right now the surface of the earth is covered with a veil. And he goes on to in verse 8, and I love this. Because the Apostle Paul quotes this as he writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 15. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. Anybody ever struggle with sin? And you're ashamed of it? And you just sit there, it's like, man, what a rebuke that is to my character in Christ. He's going to finally deal with that rebuke and say, no more sin either. No more death and no more sin. That's, That's the result. Death is the result of sin. That's why we die. If you want to know why you die, that's it. It's not because you age. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die why Adam died, why we die to this day. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, verse 9, behold, this is our God, for we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, for we have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the nation Israel singing this song, finally, we've come to know Messiah. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest, But notice how this turns the corner. And Moab, that's Edom, modern-day Jordan, shall be trampled down under him, under the Lord, as straw straw is tramped down into the refuse heap. In other words, if you've ever been in a stall with horses, and there's straw and there's manure, that's what's going to happen to people who don't love the Lord not a pretty picture. He will spread out his hand in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim and he will take down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortresses of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down and lay low and bring to the ground and bring it down to dust. You see, the Jewish mindset of feast was a thing that was Of the Lord. It was a picture of the kingdom age. In fact, most of the feast days pictured what the kingdom of the Messiah would actually be like. They understood it to be that way. It's like when we finally get to Zion, when Israel finally enters her glory, they they would speak of these things when they would feast. And that image, Jesus actually picks up in the Gospels. You see, here's the deal. In our day and time, food only sustains us for a while. And so this feast is obviously something else because it produces eternal things. Because he says, I'll swallow up death forever. In other words, what to us is, look, it doesn't matter how much you eat. Doesn't matter if you have too much or too little. Eventually, you're still going to die. You're not going to live forever. I don't care if you're vegan. I don't care if you're free-range everything. I don't care if you take every vitamin supplement known to man. I don't care if you have the best medical care available to humankind. At the very best, you might be able to eke out currently about 100, maybe 15 to 20 years. That would be the maximum length that anyone is alive on the face of the earth. So whether you live to be 42 Or 112, someday you're going to be dead. You might want to think about that. Someday you're going to be dead. What happens next? That's the question. You see, the Apostle Paul had a very keen understanding of exactly what happens when this veil comes off. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 55. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, in other words, right now I'm going to die. I try and eat well. but you know, what? I like my prime rib with a little bit of fat on it. I'm really fond. I don't have any idea what they put in that filling in Twinkies, but it's from Jesus. I, I go someplace and they've got good saltwater taffy. Mm, it's not going to be two pieces. There's things that we, we just like and they're not good for us. And you know what? Eventually, this is going to matter because whether you die from being vegan and not having enough protein or you die from eating too many Twinkies, you're still going to die. The question is what happens next? And this mortal has put on immortality. Look, I'm mortal, but not for not forever, not because of my Jesus. Then it should be brought to pass the saying that is written, and here it is, straight from the lips of the prophet Isaiah. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Sheol, the grave, where is your victory over me? You see, Jesus defeated death itself. He put death to death when he died on the cross and was raised again. Death couldn't hold, the grave couldn't hold. Exactly what David said, Jesus made a reality. Death couldn't keep Jesus. And in Christ, death can't keep me either. So even though I am going to die, for sure, exactly what Jesus said, because he is the resurrection and the life. If I believe in him, I'm going to live with him forever. Death is dead to me. I may still die, but I'm going to live. And I'm going to have eternal life in that living. You see, but for most people who don't know the Lord, there's a veil over that thought process. They just think, well, if I just live well now, I can extend my days. I had to laugh because when we lived up in the mountains uh, in Crestline, uh, the Church of Scientology has a a little compound there. and uh, There's some pretty interesting things. They still have preserved L. Ron Hubbard's head. His brain is still in it. And they think that the whole consciousness of the human being is inside that brain. And someday they're going to bring his brain back to life. They aren't going to find anything because the moment he took his last breath, he went straight to the abuso if he didn't know Jesus. And I don't believe he did. Maybe he did. I don't know. I hope he did. But without Jesus, his eternal life is going to be spent in Hades, away from God. He'll be in the abode of the dead to start with, the abuso, and eventually he'll be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. You see, for me, I don't have that same fear. I'm not going, well, you know, I don't want that. I don't worry about hell. I look forward to the glories of heaven. That's why Paul, as you would go on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, We use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. You see, Moses' earthly glory that he had for a little while passed away. But for me, for you, for those who know the Lord, that glory is eternal. God's going to save us. He's going to preserve us. He's going to keep us. You see, the children of Israel, their minds were blinded, just like mine was blinded before I met Jesus. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. But because the veil is taken away in Christ, even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on the heart of the Jewish people, that nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord... The veil's taken away. Every Jewish person who comes and has the veil removed and they come to Christ, all of a sudden they're like, it's him. It's Jesus. Paul would go on in chapter four of the second letter to the church at Corinth. And it says there in verse 3:4 even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are per- perishing. That's who it's veiled to. And so in that sense, As we look at this beautiful preservation that's going to happen for us and to us and through us, the Jewish people that Paul writes to, the ones that Paul speaks of there in Romans chapter 11, For I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But then he says, quoting Isaiah chapter 59, then one day all Israel will be saved. A deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The way your sins are taken away is by knowing Jesus personally. There isn't any other way for your sins to be taken completely away. You could have them atoned for, but that didn't take them away. That just placed them on a scapegoat. That goat wandered out in the wilderness. Sins were still there, somewhere. But that is gonna be removed. And so this song that the deliverer will come out of Zion is this beautiful picture of what happens to the Jewish people in the very last days. And the imagery is graphic here. The, the Moabites, the people without Christ, the people who don't know the Lord, those who are today, you, you would say they're, they're in bondage of Islam, that they believe that if they if they try and live their life correctly and they offer alms and do good things, that one day Allah will take out his scales and he'll, he'll balance them out and, and maybe if Allah wills, you'll get into paradise. That's not what a Christian believes. That's not what I believe. I believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I believe that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, not kind of, sort of saved, not put in some category of people that will have to work it out later. I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to be spared from the wrath to come. And that's why verse 10 in the NIV says, the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled. In other words, the people who have come to faith in Christ on Mount Zion, the people who love the Lord Jesus, will will be a mountain protected by him, but people who don't know him will be trampled down under him, just like straw is trampled down in manure. In other words, those that come to faith will be enjoying the good things of the Lord, but those who don't know him, will be treated as if they're straw in the excrement of animals. Let's see. Swimming in manure or the majesty of heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb? That's not a hard decision for me. And here's the amazing thing. It comes by simply professing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and asking Him to forgive your sin. Declaring you're a sinner, agreeing with God, saying, I am a sinner. I agree. The Romans' road is right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life eternal in Christ Jesus as Lord. You see, you can try and do it your own way and run to a city. You can try and hide from the wrath that is to come yourself. You can build a bunker. You can buy some property in Montana. You you can build a bomb shelter. You can try and figure it out some way. You can store enough food for 10 years, hoping that once the final disaster comes, you'll pop out and you'll be part of the repopulation of the earth. It's not going to happen. You don't know Jesus. It won't matter where you're hiding you're either saved by his grace or you're going to be crushed by his wrath. The choice is yours. That's not a hard choice. It's an easy choice because he'll give you the faith to believe if you just simply cast your cares on him. Believe in his name and you will be saved. I don't have any intention of going through the tribulation. People ask me all the time, oh, the church is going to go through the tribulation. No, the church isn't going to go through the tribulation. The Bible says he saved us from that. Do I deserve to go through a tribulation? You better believe I do because I'm a sinner. I deserve it, but I won't get it. That's how great the grace of God is. And I pray you know that great grace tonight and that you'll walk in it, rest in it, Trust him, because he does save his kids. He absolutely redeems those and saves those who are his. He he will not let you perish, because he loves you, as long as you love him. Father, thank you for tonight, and we pray that, Lord, those that are listening, there might be some tuned in and they've, heard the gospel message, maybe for the first time, they didn't even know that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we we just ask Holy Spirit right now that as we have pastors that are waiting online would pray with and talk to those who might have questions. Lord, we ask that you would do virtually what we'd love to do personally. We'd love to be with people right now, but we can't. And so we ask that you'd use these simple Live stream broadcast to preach your gospel to the lost. And we pray that the lost would be found, that people would not flirt with eternal damnation. Death, or eternal death, far worse than actual death. Eternal separation from you. But your word declares to us that you desire that all should be saved, that all should come to the knowledge of repentance. And you offer for that the free gift of faith, that if we will believe on you will be saved and so lord i pray for those that don't know you that they would right now in the quietness of their heart just confess their sin and invite you jesus to come in and set up home to be their savior and lord father we thank you for sparing us from the wrath to come we look forward to that day when you take us home Lord, we'd love for this pandemic to be over, but more importantly, we'd love for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. So we pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us into your home and making us your own. You've done that by grace and through faith, and so we rejoice in it. Save those who don't know you tonight we ask all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.